Hey, hello, insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you, wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Ash, going solo today and joining you live from my secure underground bunker located in the heart of Coronado, California, where thousands of patriots live free in this little village by the Pacific Ocean. My good friend and co-host, Eb Wilkinson, is on assignment this week. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm pleased you have joined us for a special Hughes Aircraft Raytheon edition of Inside Track. Eb and I hope you had a meaningful and fun Independence Day holiday. We had our kids and grandkids visiting us here last weekend. We enjoyed a Yankee Doodle Fourth filled with parades, Lego Land, God, the kids love that, and fireworks. The excitement of everyone being able to enjoy Independence Day was beyond any holiday I recall for many years. I hope you enjoyed your fourth weekend. The 4th of July also marks the traditional start of our monsoon season here in southern Arizona. Lots of rain is forecast for the upcoming week. Let's hope for the moisture we need to restore the aquifer as well as, as, well as relief for our flowers and our gardens. Speaking of gardens, I spent the last week digging out part of our backyard garden. I planted brand new agapanthus, fortnite lilies, and ferns to dress up my garden. After the show today, I'll be back at it again, filling our big pots with new lavender and taking some of the plant materials I removed from the garden yesterday into a big pot for the middle of our uh, plot area. Hey, this isn't a garden show, and I'm not Monty Don, but even um, when it's hot, as blazes as it is right now, it's always a great time to be planting. just makes you feel good about the world. The Phoenix Suns are still shining, talking about sun. Up 2-0 against the Bucks. They play game three in Milwaukee. I'm still not an NBA fan, but you got to support our Arizona teams, even if the team is located north of the Gila River. Important stuff here with hot temps. I want to remind you about the work of Sister Jose Women's Homeless Center here in Tucson. Um, Eb and I, we want to reach out to all of our listeners. Please help Jean Fedigan and her staff at Sister Jose keep their ladies safe. You can drop off cases of drinking water for the women at 1050 South Park. It's located on Park Avenue, just north of 22nd Street. For those of you who can't make it to the center, uh, you can direct your monetary gift to the ladies online at www.srjosewomensshelter. That's S-R-J-O-S-E-W-O-M-E-N-S-S-H-E-L-T-E-R.com. Hopefully I got that right, Charles, by the speed of the pen. Sister Jose is helping nearly 1,000 homeless females in our downtown area and really making a huge difference. We hope you will help out today because it's going to be a long, hot summer. And when you donate to Sister Jose, you can provide the homeless women of Tucson access to showers, laundry, meals, clothing, shoes, and above all, a compassionate community, which they can develop the resources and confidence to live in a sustainable life. Please help Jean Finnegan and her great group of, of professionals and volunteers at Sister Jose. There are some great volunteer opportunities available. Call Jean or her crew at 909-3905. That's 909-3905. Eb and I, pardon me, support Sister Jose and hope you will too. We welcome your calls at the Essential Pest Control Hotline. It's 790-2040. The show is better with your participation. Call in with your questions or comments at 790-2040. And uh, hey, we have a great show for you today. After the break, Street Smarts columnist for the Arizona Daily Star, David Layton, will join us to talk about a very magical time in Tucson's history when Hughes Aircraft came to the old Pueblo. This portion of the show has been brought to you by my co-host, Eb Wilkinson, and his partner, Gary Imus, from Imus Wilkinson Investment Management, whose baby steps approach to your wealth management is designed so you never have to solely depend 
on socialist security. Eb manages family wealth for my sister. I just got the uh, end of June report, and he is still doing a fabulous job. Call Eb at 777-1911 and let him help you also. All right. Well, um, I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to TucsonIronRetail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. It's termite season. Fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Run for your life! Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. Ask not... What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911, 777-1911. Hey, welcome back to Inside Track. Tom, our producer, was so excited about getting those ads on the uh, air, uh, he uh, got a little ha- ahead of me on the script. Uh, this portion of today's show, though, was brought to you by our friends Jamie and Gary Kipper from Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. They have some of the best surplus materials they've ever had in stock today to help with your next project. Everyone can find something for the home or ranch at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus and at super low prices. Don't go to the big box store. Check out what they have to offer in the 700 block of East 36th Street. And hey, while you're at it, when you visit Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus, ask Jamie about her chickens and maybe pick up a dozen eggs while you're there. They're really very, very good. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus is a great locally owned family business you can depend upon. Eb and I do. So should you. Before we get to our special guest, friend of the show, David Layton, um, who is sitting in the studio, raring to go, I want to tell you about a great visit I had with the new Arizona football coach, Jed Fish. I took our neighbor, Bill Luke, and his wife, Mary, uh, to a visit with uh, Coach Fish this week. Bill was a lineman for the U of A in the mid-1960s when he played for gentleman Jim LaRue and later played 10 years as a starter for the Green Bay Packers and later the Philadelphia Eagles. Bill and I were very impressed with Coach Fish's energy, and he's got a lot of very talented people working for him. Uh, It's hard to imagine this, but it's been nearly 715 days since the U of A football team has won a game. Jed Fish is a winner. Look for some exceptional success. And I want to pass along one of the things we talked about with him. Did you know that over 1 million kids play high school football? I didn't. About 1.5% of them end up playing college football at a four-year college. Now, only about 6% of those uh, players get drafted and may make it into the NFL. Most don't, and many, unfortunately, lack the life skills needed for success after football. Uh, Jed and his staff have developed what's called the fifth quarter program to help these young men develop the various skills needed to get a job and be a leader in the work world. They've been a success in their athletic careers, but this is to be a leader in the work world. And they need this when they complete their athletic careers. 
for a long-suffering U of A fam like me, I've had a lifetime dream of sitting in the Rose Bowl on January 1st watching the Cats play. For the young men playing on the field, they've had a dream to play in a New Year's Eve, in a, in a New Year's Day game in the Rose Bowl and also be winners in life. It sounds to me like the new coach wants to develop winners in life as well as on the football field, and that's a good thing. I hope Coach Fish will join us sometime soon to talk more about the fifth quarter. Okay, on to our special guest. I'm very pleased uh, to welcome special friend of the show, David Layton, back to Inside Track. Um, we all enjoy the stories and pictures in his recurring Street Smarts column at the Arizona Daily Star. Now, the edit editorial page at the Arizona Daily Star may not be everyone's cup of tea, but the Street Smarts column that David very, very ably contributes to is a winner. Great history for the newcomers and uh, also for lifelong Tucsonans like me. David will be our guest for the rest of today's show. I know Eb was looking forward to helping out with our time together today, but he's listening online, I'm sure. Welcome back, David. I hope your summer's been going well. Thanks for having me back on. I really appreciate it. Uh, summer is, you know, it's it's rather hot and um, kind of sticky at this point, so kind of surviving, spending a lot of time in uh, in the inside in the air conditioning, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Hey, remind our listeners, David, how did you get started uh, with the Street Smarts gig at the Star? So the way it worked out is one day I was driving down Prince Road. I was heading to the I-10 uh, so I could jump on it and head to Oro Valley to head to a friend's house. And so I'm driving down there and, you know, I got some time to kill. Uh, my friend's still at work. So I'm like, oh, you know, driving along and I see this street called Runway Drive. And I thought, that's kind of an interesting street name. You know, who names a street a runway? And I thought, you know, I got some time to kill. So I decided to just turn off and, and drive down Runway Drive. And I noticed it just kept going and going and going and going. And it was kind of at an angle, kind of like a runway. Now, the angle was kind of based on the I-10. It kind of went along that same kind of angle. And I thought to myself, I thought, you know, this reminds me of an actual runway. And, you know, so I drove it and eventually I get up to my friend's house in Oro Valley and we're talking for a little while. And eventually I said, yeah, I drove down the street called Runway Drive at Prince and in, in I-10. And I said, it reminded me of a runway. And he was an older guy. He'd been in Tucson for a while. And he said, yeah, there, there was an airport there at one point. And that kind of fascinated me. I was like, wow, you know, there was actual airport where Runway Drive is. And, you know, so it got me kind of interested. I did a little research at the Arizona Historical Sighting and found out that there had been an airport built there. I think it was like 1939, and it was called the Gilpin Airport. And later on, as the years passed, it became the Freeway Airport after the I-10 was built there. And so it had kind of an interesting history, and I thought, wow, you know, this is fascinating that here's a little piece of history that nobody knows. They, they drive by this street, runway drive on the way, way to I-10 every day, and nobody knows that there was history there to it. Um, about a week later, I came across a, an article in the Desert Leaf, which is kind of a uh, Catalina Foothills Yep. magazine and they did a story on Harold Bell Wright and the land he lived on so he lived on a piece of land on Speedway in Wilmot and he actually wrote several books there now he lived back in the 1930s he was a very famous author when after he sold his land the developer decided to name the streets after characters in his book like Martha Hillgrove Brian yep. Kent Printer Udell and that kind of intrigued me again and I started to realize there's a lot of history in these street names. Um, I had decided, you know, when I was in college, uh, when I was taking journalism, that uh, I would take a tour of the Arizona Daily Star. And, you know, I'd done that and decided, you know, I was going to go ahead and propose the idea to the Star. And they loved it. And it, that was about nine years ago. So, you know, I, I enjoy all your Street Smarts columns. And before we talk about Hughes Aircraft... Um, let me first talk about the, the freeway airport uh, story that you just um, uh, talked about. Sure. My dad learned my dad learned how to fly 
in the mid-60s at a little um, uh, air service uh, uh, school there at Runway Airport. And the first time I went up in an airplane actually was with him in a little single-engine uh, Cessna, I think, uh, you know, uh, like a 172 or something like that. Mm. And uh, it was it was a little hairy. My dad wasn't a great pilot. His, his, uh, he had good hand-eye coordination, thank goodness, but his, but his vision wasn't so good. And he was uh, restricted flying at night because he was colorblind. Oh, but, wow. Um, but I remember that airport. We lived uh, not far away from there in, in Winter Haven. And, uh, you know, in those days, it was kind of around the corner uh, from us. And, you know, there you probably know this already, David, but there was another airport uh, kind of where the U of A Research Center is off of um, off of Aquino Way called Downtown Airport. Yes. And and uh, Sinclair Oil bought that a long, long time ago and owned it for years before, you know, they finally sold it off a few years ago. But, uh, you know, and Gilpin actually was Gilpin Air Service. They had, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, air, air, air services provide uh, provider kind of locations all over the place. Okay. Yeah, Mr. Enough, Mr. Enough. Mr. Gilpin uh, also was uh, trying to think of the name of the ambassador or was it a senator that opened uh, the Arizona Inn? Oh, um, the name well, the- so... So, so the late the, there was a lady who owned it who actually was a member of con- uh, uh, Congress, um, um, Greenway. Uh, yes, that's who I'm, Isabella Greenway. Yeah. She she actually I think she co-owned it with uh, Mr. Gilpin. Um, oh, she did. Oh, that's oh, how yeah. interesting that is. I never knew yeah. that. Gilpin was well known in in Los Angeles in the early days of aviation uh, for flying uh, to in from uh, Mexico. That was kind of what he was mm-hmm. known for out of Los Angeles. So yeah, it's a, it kind of interesting history, and that's that's what sparked right. my interest was, you know, seeing that there's a little piece of history that people drive by every day and have no idea the history behind it, and I just yeah, think that's that's, cool. that's what really got me started in the in the history. So, so um, we have uh, Bob who's calling in. We're going to have him hang just for a second. Sure. Uh, before we go on and talk about Hughes Aircraft, I'd like to go back to an April column. You wrote about Rose and Meyer Agron. Uh, one of the things I found interesting uh, reading it was while many longtime Tucsonans remember Austin, it's a Ganga Agron, uh, who, by the way, is an old family friend. It was great to read about Meyer and Rose Agron, who were great community members and helped so many in need. What led you to writing about them? How did you find out about them? And I, I mean, they've been uh, gone for a number of years. Yeah, so I've worked with Randy Agron. Uh, who works oh, yeah, for yeah. Um, AF Sterling Homes, which is a local developer here in Tucson. And I've kind of helped name a few of the streets and their new subdivisions. So I was working with Randy. He mentioned that Calle Rosa was actually named for his grandmother, Rosa Gran. Uh-huh. And that kind of got me interested in who she was and what they had done and stuff like that. And why, why was there a street name for her? And so that what is what kind of led me into researching the family and and the immigration, the history of that family. And it was kind of interesting because, you know, it, the family did a lot. I mean, there's not a lot of the family left at this point. Um, we all know Austin Agron, who who came up with the phrase, hey, neighbor, that's a ganga. Um, that's a well-known phrase here in Tucson. Yeah. I mean, if you know that phrase, you're from Tucson, or you've lived here for a long time, <laughs> uh, right. only in Tucson. So I had the privilege of uh, interviewing him. It was a lot of fun. Uh, sit down, we had talk, and he shared a lot of history and family history. I mean, the article itself was predominantly late on Meyer and Rosa Gran, um, but, you know, I included some of the other family in there and their contributions and what, what they did and stuff like that. So it was kind of, it was a lot yeah, of fun. So, I enjoyed doing it. A lot of lot of research. Yeah, so, um, the original family uh, last name was Agransky. Um, they came over from right. Russia, and then in Ellis Island, as the family story goes, they cut off the ski um, at the end of it, which means I think son of or offspring of that family. So um, it was a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed doing it. It was it was a lot of work. Took a lot of time, but um, you know, it, it, I learned a lot. Actually, learned a lot about. Uh, uh, Russia that I didn't know in the past. So it was kind of fun. Hey, uh, David, we have a caller. I believe his name is Bruce. You're on with uh, David Layton on Inside Track. What's your question or comment? Okay, you guys were talking about the airport, uh, Gilpin Airport. You know, airport yeah. Uh, alongside the trailer. Right. Well, when I moved to Tucson a bit over 30 years ago, there was still evidence of a runway there. You could actually see it. 
but to this day, uh, there's still a hanger. If you know what an old uh, uh, hanger looks like, it's to this day, it's you know, it's kind of grown up with stuff around it. But uh, to this day, there's, there's still an airport hanger from back in the Gilpin days. That's correct. I think we, uh, yeah, yeah, and I think we still ha- we still have uh, uh, the old hangers from Consolidated Volte and and uh, also from um, uh, from um, uh, Grand Central Aircraft at the old uh, Tucson Airport. Yeah, and, and to go back to Gilpin, the the actual uh, tower and uh, waiting area is actually still there. There's a company called Re Darling, um, and I forget what they make. They make something for NASA. They actually occupy the old uh, hangars and uh, control tower and waiting area. So the buildings are still there. It's it's now private property, of course. Um, but the the actual building's still there uh, hmm. from hmm. what's there. So there was actually several runways. Uh, there was at least four that I'm aware of, at least from a picture I saw one time. Um, so, yeah, there's still a lot of that history left. It's just kind of all hidden away. Yeah, that's and that that's sort of the great thing that you're able to do as a as a historian and an author. We have Mark hanging on the line. He also had a comment for you, David. Sure, Mark, go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah, I have a comment and a question, and I'll uh, start out with a question. I live on a long, well, driveway, I guess I would call it, and, and I it's like um, oh, probably seven hundred to eight hundred feet long, and I would like to name that. And is there a process to go through naming? something like that with, you know, a vanity name, I guess you might call it. And uh, also a couple of roads that always hurts my ears when I hear it pronounced wrong or, you know, grinds me is um, Houghton Road and Ina Road. And I don't (laughs) want to say what people call it because it hurts my ears. (laughs) Well, I mean, Ina Road is probably the most commonly mispronounced street name in Tucson. Uh, everyone, of course, calls it Ina, um, but it is actually Ina Road, named for Ina Giddings. Um, right. So that is commonly mispronounced. It should be Ina Road. Um, it's, it's a tough one because people have been pronouncing it that way for a long, long time. Um, Ina Giddings, for example, while she was still alive, would write to the newspaper and complain in letters to the editor that people are mispronouncing her name. Um, my guess would be after the 1950s, when there was a large influx of people from outside of Tucson coming in, that's when people started calling it Ina, because they weren't really right. aware of who she was. Um, but that's correct. It is actually Ina Road. And uh, the the one everyone calls, um, what do they call it? It's, it is. It they is call it Houghton. Houghton. Yeah, it is really Houghton. Uh, it's named after William and Florence Houghton. Um, they were homesteaders in the area, homestead about 640 acres. Um, that one is mispronounced quite commonly, unfortunately, as well. Um, so, yeah, those those two streets um, get it all the time. They mispronounce that street all the time. So, David, if, if Mark was... If, to pronounce it correctly. <laughs> well, I know, I know um, NPR Radio pronounces Houghton correct. So I know they at least do that correctly. They pronounce that street correctly because I've heard several of their DJs pronounce that correctly. But so Mark wants Mark wants to name this long, long uh, stretch of uh, paved road in front of, I guess, leading to your house, right, Mark? It's a driveway. It's dirt. Yes, it's dirt uh, driveway, and uh, so you know my place is not the easiest place to find. So if I gave it a name, you know, what's the process to go through naming something like that? Uh, for an individual... Comes the name comes off of another dirt road. It's yeah. Named dirt road. Yeah. For an individual, um, I mean, the only street naming I've done is through a developer. That's the only process I know. Um, I think for an individual, you'd have to contact Pima County. I think it's Department of Transportation. And then there's a whole process to go through. And I don't know the whole process because I've never actually done it. Um, But the first step I believe would be contact Pima County Department of Transportation. Even if it's in with the, even if it's in the city limits, I still believe Pima County actually handles that. County, yeah. Okay, so either way, yeah, you go through Pima County and there's a process you have to go through. And like I said, I've never done it. 
that way. So I don't know the process. I just know that's probably where you would start at. Okay. Hey, Mark, right. thanks, for, thanks for your call. Thanks. Good good call. I appreciate you calling in. Hey, Producer Tom, let's go to our bottom of the hour break. When we return, we'll continue chatting with author and columnist David Layton. You're listening to Inside Track. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. What other kind of customers do you have? So our Tucson? biggest customers are actually like ranchers and yeah. people from outside of the Tucson area. They're buying a lot of square tubing. They're buying a lot of stuff for their ranch to close off fences. We'll sell anything from 10 feet to 10,000 feet to somebody that comes in because we have new steel and surplus steel from steel mills. The reason we're able to get such good pricing on some of this stuff is A, we sell scrap to the mill. So uh, we have a relationship there and then we can buy material, what they're making, bringing it back. And so we save on freight and we have relationships for years with them. So I think that's really our niche market. We'll sell whatever you need. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. It's termite season. Bugs fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control, 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. I'm Eb Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Hey, welcome back to Inside Track. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I'm having a great time and glad David Layton is joining us. We've been long in getting this thing set up with David and a public mea culpa uh, from me uh, to, to David. I've got your books and and uh, we'll, we'll be getting them to you. I apologize. I know I've kind of goofed you up, but I wanted to publicly say I was sorry for, for, for uh, goofing you up. So you've been researching and developing a book about the history of Hughes Aircraft here in Tucson for some time. Hughes, now Raytheon, has been such an important part of Tucson's economy and life here for about eight decades. 2021 is an anniversary year for Hughes and Raytheon here in Tucson, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, actually, 2021 is the 70th, 70th. Did I say, yeah, did I say, I, I said eight decades, because it actually ha will be eight decades, but 70 years, isn't it? Yeah, it's been 70 years since uh, Hughes Aircraft Company opened its doors here in 1951. Just, it's just an amazing, so Hughes... Hughes Aircraft or Raytheon was initially a tool and die company, wasn't it? They didn't they do uh, like uh, oil drilling equipment and so on as well. No, so Hughes Tool Company was founded by Howard Hughes's father, known yeah. as Big Howard or Hughes Senior, uh, who patented a drill bit that could drill through hard rock in Texas and could get to oil uh, that other drill bits couldn't get to. And because of the Hughes Tool Company and because his father had founded this company around 1909, um, when his father died, he was quite wealthy. He was a young man of, I think, 19 or 20, and he had quite a bit of wealth because of the Hughes Tool Company based out of Houston, uh, Texas. And then because of that, he was able to do whatever he wanted, and that was to go to Hollywood and start filming movies, and then later on form the Hughes Aircraft Company. Hmm. So um, Howard Hughes was a record-breaking pilot himself, wasn't he? Correct. He, he at one point, uh, one of the things that people don't seem to remember about him is that he held many records uh, related to aviation. Um, in 1935, he took the Hughes Racer, which most people incorrectly call the H1 Racer, and he flew that uh, and became the fastest land plane record in the world. Uh, that was 1935. 
In 1936 and 37, he flew across the continent, broke records two years in a row. Um, let's see, 1938, he flew around the world, broke Wiley Post record of a flying around the world. Um, he did quite a bit as far as breaking records in aviation and developing new technology or working with some of the best engineers uh, from places like Caltech, California Institute of Technology, to develop these uh, new planes and new technologies. And he was a very flamboyant, and we know this from, you know, from some of the stories, uh, very flamboyant, very, you know, a guy who grabbed uh, headlines, owned a movie studio, signed, you know, some very uh, voluptuous actresses and and usually, well, I shouldn't say usually, but oftentimes was the, was the uh, um, you know, subject of, of kind of scandalous uh, reports about him and, and these women. Um, tell us about, if you can, about his, uh, about his movie company, because he certainly had a lot of um, success. It, was it RKO, RKO Radio that he owned, um, you know, that movie studio, or was it another one? So RKO Studios, he, he bought in 1948. Uh, he had already been in the movie business for quite a while before he bought that studio. Now, prior to that, in the it'd be the 1930s, uh, he started his own movie company called the Cato Company. Now, the Cato Company name comes from the Cato Parish, or Cato County, you could call it. They, they call them parishes in Louisiana, uh, where his father had done a lot of oil strikes. And that's mm. where a lot of the wealth comes from. Uh, originally through Hughes Tool Company. Um, so he paid homage to the Cato Parish and the oil fields there by calling his company the Cato Company. And so through Cato Company, he did several films, uh, including Hell's Angels, uh, which is probably his most famous film, uh, was Hell's Angels back in, came out in 1930. He filmed it between 1927 and 1930. Um, there's also like Sky Devils and Cock of the Air and other aviation films. He also did uh, Outlaw, which made Jane Russell famous. Um, Hell's Angels, of course, uh, made Gene Harlow famous and stuff like that. So he actually originally started uh, filming with the Cato Company uh, before he and I, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified that. That's that's great information to have. So he 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 raced these aircraft. He develops some aircraft. Uh, probably the the biggest aircraft at that time that had been built was this thing called the nickname the Spruce Goose. Uh, what other aircraft uh, did he develop uh, through this company that he had? Well, he didn't develop a lot. Hughes Aircraft Company as an airframe builder, I think they call it, uh, developing planes and stuff like that, uh, wasn't very successful. He lost money most of the time he ran Hughes Aircraft Company. Uh, most of the time he was taking money from Hughes Tool Company and putting it into Hughes Aircraft Company. Um, he developed the Hughes Racer, uh, which like I said, everyone calls incorrectly the H1 Racer. It was actually called the 1B, like 1 Bravo, was the real name of that plane. Mm -hmm. Um, or the racer, uh, some people call it the Hughes Special. Now, kind of like the Spruce Goose, um, that was a name the media created right. for the HK-1 Hercules, also known as H-4 Hercules. The, the name H-1, again, was created by the media, and it was created years later. If you look through newspapers at that period, no one ever calls it the H-1 racer. They call it the racer um, or the Hughes Special. Um, so that was his probably most successful plane, was his first one. Uh, he also developed, unsuccessfully, the D-2. Uh, it was called the, it stood for Duramold 2. Duramold is a process by which um, different layers of wood um, are put with, I don't know, I don't know if it's glue or resin, and that's heated to a certain degree to make the wood really, really hard. Yeah. And that's how he was able to uh, build what we call the Spruce Goose. Um, he, he took this process developed by someone else, and, excuse me, kind of perfected it. And that's how he was able to build this plane called the Spruce Goose through that process. So reading, reading through your, your manuscript, um, 
the Hughes Air, the, the Hughes, excuse me, the Hughes workforce in Culver City uh, obviously was doing lots of uh, work in, during World War II. But they had about 6,000 people working for them, and it went to 800 people after the war when, when the you know, uh, demobilization began and you know, returned to a civilian contract uh, kind of economy. But Hughes got contracts, didn't he, to develop and build helicopters and then later guided missiles? Right. So what, you, what happened basically is Hughes reached an all-time high of employees of about 6,000. Uh, this would probably be around 1944, maybe early 1955. Um, after that, there wasn't much business. There wasn't much going on. And so they transitioned. Um, you know, they started, slowly started laying people off and stuff like that. Um, and the people running Hughes, they had to come up with something, some sort of business to keep people employed. Um, one of the interesting facts that most people will never know um, is that Hughes, for a very short period, built furniture. Um, <laughs> for, between World War II and the, the development of missiles, um, they actually built um, furniture. It was a furniture builder just for a short period. They built chairs, wood cabinets for television sets, garage doors. Um, they built the so maybe wood- using that same maybe using that same technology that they mm-hmm. had for airframes. Right. The Durham technology was an amazing technology. Um, and it was kind of, you know, it was a technology that was developed, like I said, by someone else, but it was a great technology, um, that they tried to make it work. They also built, uh, seven foot dinghies or sportsman boats, like a fishing, little fishing boat. And, you know, so that's one of the things they transitioned into. Um, just want to come, I guess someone called in and had the question whether Rita Road was Rita Ranch and Rita Road was uh, named by Howard Hughes for Rita Hayworth. Um, so when Howard Hughes bought the Rita Ranch in 1951, it had already had the name for at least six years. The Fletcher family owned that ranch and had called it Rita Ranch for a long time. So no, Rita Ranch and Rita Road is not named for Rita Hayworth in spite of the fact that it's in some books and people will call it fact and real estate agents will tell you that. I mean that, that I was, do love that story though. I mm-hmm. love that story. Though. It's it's a great story. Everyone <laughs> loves it. It was probably but it's created, false. It was probably created by real estate people who wanted to sell the land. I mean, because it's kind of great to buy a ranch named after Rita Hayworth, the famous actress. But yeah. it's it's not true. Uh, Rita Ranch likely takes its name from the Rita train station that no longer exists. And that train station uh, which was nearby, likely took its name from the Santa Rita Mountains. It was just a shortening of it for that reason. Got it. So, so after World War II, um, Hughes, Hughes uh, begins developing technology, doesn't, don't they? And, and this is how they get into the guided missile business. Is that accurate? Right. So after World War II... Um, they're looking for a business line to go into. Uh, the company had been, for the most part, a failure at creating aircraft. Um, they had a guy named Dave Evans, who was the radio man. He's the one that developed the radios and, and worked on the around-the-world flight in 1938. So he started going into um, working on electronics and, and radar and missiles and starting to develop a guided missile. Now, there were a lot of other companies like, like Fairchild and Lockheed that had begun the process of tr- you know, researching guided missiles. At that day, they had rockets that they would just shoot and hope they'd hit the target. So they needed something more accurate, something that would hone in on the enemy, enemy's plane. So they needed some type of guided missile. Other companies tried it, but Hughes was actually successful in creating the first like successful guided missile mm-hmm. that became the Falcon. And that's what right. led to the construction of the plant here in Tucson was they needed to build, they needed a place to build that, that missile. So, so the company was kind of uh, uh, conflicted. They had a, a pretty significant uh, operation in Culver city and, and other areas in Los Angeles. Why did the company decide to set up shop outside of Culver, Culver city, maybe four or 500 or even more miles away from the West coast? So the decision to build a plant uh, outside of Culver City, outside of Los Angeles area, 
was kind of twofold. It was partly because Howard Hughes had had a long-held fear that his plant was vulnerable to attack. He's on the West Coast. The Culver City plant is literally basically on the beach. And he believed that his plant could be attacked by enemies. Now, this is 1951. The U.S. is embroiled in the Korean conflict. And because of that, that was kind of the first impetus uh, to get the plant moved. The second part of it was that the U.S. government had a policy they'd implemented about decentralizing uh, military installations. They didn't want everything built in California, for example, where most of the aviation stuff was. Um, so there was two, it was twofold, and that's the reason why they started looking to go inland. They wanted to be close to the Culver City plant, but not close enough that it would be an easy target. So the cities that I understand, according to your text, uh, were under consideration besides Tucson were Phoenix, Albuquerque, El Paso, and Houston. How was it? I mean, what was the decision sort of rationale for Tucson, Arizona? Well, so what happened in January of 1951, uh, General Ira Aker, who was basically the, the guy in charge under underneath Hughes, um, started a 10-day tour with Roy Drachman. The name Drachman, of course, is familiar with most people. Drachman Street and the Drachman family has been here since the 1850s. Well, he took um, the heads of Hughes Aircraft around and Hughes Tool Company around Shown them different sites between Tucson and Phoenix. I mean, they also were considering Houston because uh, that's where the Houston Tool Company or Hughes Tool Company was at, and then also New Mexico and stuff like that. Um, after about the ten-day tour, Hughes Company was looking at Phoenix. They had uh, decided, pretty much decided on a place they wanted to build their um, plant at. But what happened is somebody, uh, I believe, in the Phoenix Chamber of Commerce leaked that information out to the owner of the land, which is a huge piece of land, and the guy all of a sudden raised his prices significantly. Hughes Company at that point realized they couldn't trust the people in Phoenix and decided to come to Tucson. Had somebody in the Phoenix Chamber of Congress, not, or whoever it was, not uh, released that information or leaked it to the owner of the land, Hughes would have been built in Phoenix and Raytheon would be in Phoenix as well. So this whole operation in Tucson was a, a, really a, a super secret, kind of well-kept secret uh, that, if, if for nothing else, allowed um, Roy Drachman to go out and get these options. I think they were for like $50 an acre for the 32,000 acres, uh, which was part of the Hughes Holdings out on the, on the southwest side. Is that correct? So Roy Drachman obtained... Um, about over 2,000 acres just south of the Tucson Airport from the Tucson Airport Authority, and that's right. where they built the actual plant. Um, he also obtained uh, 32,000 acres of land around the city. Um, a lot of that land was uh, in the Vale area and then in the Catalina foothills as well. I'm sure there was stuff elsewhere too. Um, so it, that's he, he kind of secretly did that, started obtaining the land because they were afraid if people found out, they would also raise their prices. So everything was done kind of clandestine. Uh, Roy Drachman, uh, I think the mayor knew about it, uh, head of the Pima County um, Board of Supervisors was aware of it, and they all were kept all kept secret so they could obtain the land. And once they obtained the land, then it came out uh, in the newspapers and stuff like that that Hughes was building here in Tucson. And and probably the, the biggest secret keeper in this whole operation was William Small, who ran the two newspapers in Tucson, wasn't he? Right. He had the the most to gain from leaking it, because obviously he ran the newspaper or owned it. I can't remember which one. Um, I mean, getting the both. first... Both. Okay. Um, so he had the early skinny on it because of his connection to the TAA, that what was going on. Had he released that information to newspaper... Um, he would have had like a first, you know, like, you know, get the exclusive, I guess would be the terminology. Mm -hmm. Um, But he remained silent, didn't say anything until it came out. I think everyone realized how important Hughes Aircraft would be to Tucson, uh, which has bared out to be true over the years. And so they all kept quiet and, um, you know, that they went through the process and 
and Hughes came into existence. So, so Hughes Aircraft wasn't the first aviation-related industry to locate in Tucson, was it? We had Grand Central Aircraft. My grandmother worked there as a, as a riveter in the Second World War. Consolidated Voltee uh, was, was also operating you know, from the old Tucson Municipal Airport sites where you, where you still see those old hangar buildings. But this was a whole different kind of an operation. This was going to be 500,000 square feet and up to 5,000 jobs you know, on the assembly line, as well as 2,000 construction workers. That was a huge number for Tucson uh, in, in that period of time, wasn't it? I mean, it'd be a huge deal today, but it was just an enormous kind of a undertaking at that time, wasn't it? Right. I mean, before Hughes came to Tucson, I mean, you had, had Grand Central Aircraft here uh, during World War II. Uh, you had consolidated uh, Volte aircraft as well in those three hangars. So they had some aviation contracts before that, uh, but Hughes was really a, the big deal. I mean, <coughs> excuse me, it was it was here to stay. I mean, what, unlike the other ones who were just renting hangars, they were going to do whatever they did, and, you know, then they moved on. But Hughes was actually going to stay here and provide a lot of jobs for Tucson, um, there wasn't much in Tucson prior to Hughes as far as, like, big jobs. You had the U of A, you had the city of Tucson. But, I mean, this was a whole different level of employment that they brought to Tucson. And this job, it it flew. I mean, if you excuse the pun with aviation, <laughs> but this thing, this thing, it just, it raced so fast from from February of 51 to the end of the year, they they built the 500,000 square foot or 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 you know the the major part of it and were able to start work they built roads they brought the uh, you know utilities and and water sewer electric gas they brought a railroad spur man could you even imagine something like that happening so fast in 2021 just 70 years later well you know I, I, there was a big big push big impetus to to create it and, and that was a lot of reflection about Howard Hughes. When Howard Hughes wanted something done, it got done. You know, he he does he spared no expense. He would spend whatever money necessary. You know, just like when he made films like Hell's Angels and all that. I mean, just just get it done. You know, so although Hell's Angels, I guess, dragged out for about three years, but that was because of sound and st- different different reasoning. Yeah. But yeah, that was a Howard Hughes type of style. Just get things done and. And by 1951, Howard Hughes had some really good people working for him. General uh, Ira Aker, uh, General George, you know, several of these people that had been prominent generals during World War II, he hired on. And so he had top-notch people running the company. By 1951, he's also starting to go into decline. Uh, His accident in 1946, when he crashed the the Hughes XF-11 experimental fighter, caused an immense amount of pain, got him on pain pills and stuff like that. So he started the slow decline starting in 1946. By 1951, he's already starting to kind of go into seclusion and stuff like that. So uh, a lot of that credit really is due to the people that he hired uh, more than it is Hughes, but that the, the company's mentality had a lot to do with how Hughes wanted things done. So this was a this was a a whole kind of an operation. The, uh, Hughes people knew that they'd have to build a whole bunch of housing. Uh, that that's where Sunland Gardens came from, probably Imperial Gardens as well. Uh, there there you know was mass rapid transit that had to get you know to and from the area. Um, there they started the, the what was then I think it was called the Hughes Aircraft Workers Federal uh, Credit Union. You know now it's uh, Hughes uh, Federal Credit. Um, they had all kinds of charitable things that they did around town. I mean, this was a this wasn't just a bunch of guys who were building missiles and uh, and other related products. I mean, they this was a it really reshaped Tucson, didn't it? Yeah, it did change the culture to a certain degree. I mean, prior to you know prior to Hughes coming here, it was mostly like I said, it was kind of a sleepy town. Um, a lot of retired people live here, as they still do. Um, but I think it's just one of those things where it started to change it to more of a technological advancement. Um, I mean, the amount of money that came with Hughes was huge. I mean, the, the money that people were getting paid, uh, as right. is, you know, today with Raytheon as well. You know, so you so, saw... So, 
so we we're 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 almost at the end of our time. I I want to I want you to talk about the huge controversy that that happened literally as soon as the plant opened up because city of Tucson and Pima County thought they were going to get all kinds of property taxes from this, uh, but it didn't work out that way, did it? Yeah. So there was kind of a belief that mostly I think with Pima County, I believe Hughes was actually in the county at that point. I'm not hundred percent sure that it was, I don't think it was in the city. I think it was in the county um, that they were going to get a huge amount of tax revenue from Hughes as a result of all the money coming in and out, the federal contracts, the U.S. Air Force contracts, that they were going to get a lot of money from this business. And what ended up happening is that, I think it was around the time that it opened, it opened, I think, November of 51. So around that around that time, uh, the U.S. Air Force came in and just bought the plant. They just took over the plant. It was their plant. And as a result of that, being a federal plant, the county lost out on a ton of money. Well, they made it back, though, in, in all that revenue that was created from from the salaries and so on. I, I, David, I, I think I'm quoting these numbers correct. If I'm off, uh, the numbers are still huge. There were a thousand scientists that worked on these missile systems. There was 30,000 missiles that were built. Um, they built the they built the Falcon and, and, and variant and variants of it. The Maverick, the Tow, Amram, Phoenix. Uh, I mean, it, you know, they they had four thousand employees by by nineteen fifty five. They hired vets. They even hired disabled people who, like Frank Elias, that you wrote about, who who were able. To, he was sight impaired, but he could feel things. I mean, it was really an, a genius company right from the very start, wasn't it? It was, and a lot of that's again due to the Hughes's ability to hire the best people. Hughes had a knack. Um, to hire great people, and as great people take over leadership, it, it goes down to the average workers and the average laborers. So I mean, that that's to Hughes's credit for hiring really good people, willing to spend the money to hire the best people. Hughes Aircraft Company was a, was a special company. It's not like other companies. I, I don't think you know Raytheon is similar, but it wasn't the same. You know, I've talked to a lot of. Uh, I worked at Raytheon for a couple of years and I, and I had a chance to talk to what they called Hughes legacy employees. Those are people that had worked for Hughes when Raytheon had bought it and they'd worked there for 20, 30 years had met people and stuff like that. And it was, it really was a special company. It was a different company. So and I think we're almost. Well, Hey, thanks here. for, <laughs> thanks for joining us, David. We appreciate you taking time out to chat with us today. We're out of time. I hope you enjoyed today's chat with David Layton. God, I love his column. We'll return with another great show next week with more great guests. And until next Saturday, for Eb Wilkinson, this is Bruce Ash, and David, thanks for being here. Thank you all for joining us, praying for a wet week and wishing you a very pleasant good afternoon.